Hi, Raphael Bender here, founder of Breathe Education, and you're listening to the Pilates Elephants podcast with me and my co-host, Chloe Bunter. There are many things that are awesome about the Pilates industry. However, many of the practices we take for granted are out of date or just plain pseudoscientific. These are the elephants in the room in Pilates, and we're here to talk about them openly and honestly, and with a fair few F-bombs thrown in. This show is about debunking the myths and giving you science-based tools to become a better, happier, and more fearless teacher. If you've been enjoying the show and you want to give back, give us a five-star rating and write us a glowing review on Apple Podcast app. That'll help other instructors find the show and let us know we're making a difference. Today I talk with Jocelyn Dustin and we talk about the influence, the profound influence that the dance world has had on almost every level of what we do in Pilates. Particularly we talk about the aesthetic influence that we've inherited from dance and how that has permeated the way that we move, the way that we cue, and even the way we think about the technique of the exercises that we're doing. And then we transition into talking about the way that the actual business mindset, you know, in quotes there about business mindset from the dance world has permeated the Pilates world and how it's perfectly compatible actually to feel that we do this for a calling and that it's something that we're extremely passionate about and at the same time to be financially remunerated for it. Um, We finish off by talking about you know, what's awesome uh, from the dance world that we have in Pilates, what's worth keeping in the present situation is we're in this pivotal kind of time of post-ish COVID and and what's worth to, what's worth hanging on to and, and, and what's worth letting go. So all that coming up. Hey, Jocelyn. Hey, Rob. Thanks for having me on. Oh, it's great <laughs> to be here with you. It's so, great to be um, here with you too. Just for for the folks folks listening at home, I guess most of us are listening at home these days. Uh, just give us the the short version of who you are and whatever it is that you want to share about what you what you do. Yeah, so my name is Jocelyn, and I own a really small Pilates studio based in Berkeley, California. So I'm on the other side of the world, and I run a little studio. I teach Pilates. I'm online now and my background, I was a dancer for a long time and then I got a BA in dance and an MFA in dance and danced in New York and dance, dance, dance. And now I do Pilates and Pilates type movement things. So there we go. There's the the shortest bio ever. (laughs) That was well done. Cool. So, um, yeah, we were chatting, the backstory here is we were chatting on Instagram DMs and yep. uh, you you really, you raised something that really got me thinking and, you know, we agreed it would be a great topic for a, a discussion on Pilates Elephants. So, do, yeah, do you want to lead in with the topic? Yeah, so I had been listening to obviously listening to Pilates elephants, because who is not listening to Pilates elephants now? (laughs) And a few other Pilates podcasts, because like any reasonable Pilates and teacher, I teach all day and then I get in my car and I turn on Pilates podcasts, because that's what we do, right? That's just like the best thing to do. Um, So I'd been engaging with some people online, listening to some podcasts, and I think recognizing that I have a specific life experience and also a specific bias 
coming from the dance world and then entering into the Pilates world from the dance world, just kind of started hearing things and collecting thoughts and writing down little notes um, and just thinking a little more deeply about the role of the dance world and its effect on the Pilates world. And that kind of historically and also currently, sort of like how it continues to have an effect. And not really making a judgment call about that, but just sort of looking at it through a couple different lenses. And I think because I've been engaging more online and there was actually a specific podcast, I think it was the one I listened to with um, Leslie Logan, mm-hmm. where you interviewed her and you had her on. It was a great podcast. And she mentioned this little tidbit of sort of in business practice. And she's like, oh, a lot of dancers come, or a lot of dancers end up in the Pilates world. A lot of, you know, there's some sort of things that happen about paying and about job security and just sort of overall business practices. And she just said this little clip about it. And I was like, okay, this is this is something that I feel needs to be discussed. And I reached out to you via Instagram and Chloe via Instagram on DMs. And I was like, I think this is an elephant. I think this is worth talking about. And then I also was like, I don't know if I'm the person to talk about this, but I do think that it's worth discussing. Mm. So, so, so here what, I am. So I guess I was you, sort of the person to talk about it. So what do you think is the elephant? So I think there are kind of like three, three lenses to look at this from, and they all kind of point to sort of one thing. So we can sort of look at the, the ramifications in our teaching practice kind of look at the business practices, you know, the effect of the dance world on the Pilates world in terms of how we organize our businesses on like a micro and macro level. And then we can kind of look at the historical lens too, which is like, okay, how much do we honor the lineage and how much liberty do we take with progressing the industry forward, still saying, okay, this is where it comes from, or this is part of the history, but how much do we need to be beholden to that? And I think honestly, like all of those sort of like three categories, at least the way that I think about them, they sort of funnel into this idea of, does this need to be intertwined? And is it intertwined? How much is it? And how does this ultimately affect our clients? You know, so I can't, a lot of this, you know, I would love to like present like data and things, you know, but in terms of my clients, I don't teach any dancers right now, you know, so when they teach 30 sessions a week and plus I do live stream classes. So it's not a ton of people, but, you know, so in, in terms of like who we're serving and how we're, how the teachers, the Pilates teachers are being taught what's embedded in the teacher training, what's embedded in the business practices, like how does that affect us serving our clients? Mm. That makes some sense. Yeah. And the, the thing that I think that, that resonates really clearly with me in, in what you said there is the, the kind of the, the aesthetic um, that we've inherited from the dance world. And, you know, I'm not a dancer and I, I, I love dancing, but, you know, <laughs> I'm just a regular yeah. person. Um, and, yeah. uh, and, and, you know, something that really strikes me, and I think, I think about this reasonably often, is like, well, if, you, you know, now that we're all, a lot of us just working out at home on a mat, you know, with mm-hmm. using a couple of tins of soup or whatever, you know, like, yeah. well. The wine what, bottle. Right. Press. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, so totally. what, 
what what makes if I'm if I'm doing say I don't know lunges on a, on an exercise mat, right? What makes that Pilates versus quote fitness, you know, right. versus yoga? You know, what's a Pilates lunge? How's a Pilates lunge different? And right. I reckon, you know, and Chloe and I've talked about this before, but I I reckon that if I'm scrolling through Instagram. I can see with with this with the sound off and the you know no subtitles. I can tell if it's a Pilates lunge or a fitness lunge, because the Pilates lunge looks more dance like. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas yeah. fitness lunges, you know, people kind of a bit more robotic and have a different style of yeah. of movement. Yeah. Um, and, and absolutely. There's, this, there's there's a there's there's one uh, Pilates page I I follow which i kind of have a love-hate relationship with it's called pilates inspiration i follow it because you know from time to time one of my friends is featured on there and i'm like oh that's awesome mm-hmm. you know nathan was on there or whoever was on there um and so i like to follow them and you know to support my my friends but about 99 percent of the people i see featured on there are like waif-like ballet dancers you yeah. know like obviously like gorgeous dancers. feet like yeah. long limbs the whole yeah. thing yeah size six or whatever i don't really know i understand u.s yeah. sizes but tiny. i don't either can you tell me about u.s sizes i have no i, I have no clue please if you I'm have any information send it over <laughs> um, but you know like and and the words used to describe are often like you know here's so-and-so doing a beautiful flow of you know yeah. this exercise right and i think like well you know, full power and I full power to people who can do that. And I I love watching people who move beautifully. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think most of us do. But but the kind of impl- implication is that it's like, well, that, you know, this is the this is the ultimate expression of the art form. You know, like this yeah. you know, we should all aspire to this. Yeah. 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 And I think that some of that for dancers that actually in my opinion, it poses actually a challenge when dancers enter into the Pilates world and they begin their training. And for me, I know personally, there was a little bit of untraining my aesthetic eye that had to happen, where things that I had been told were so true my whole life about function, about achieving a certain movement, about movement quality, even I mean, we could delve into like the biomechanics and sometimes, you know, things that we're told are just like, that's just not true. (laughs) And we're being told that to create a certain aesthetic effect on stage to portray a character or to, you know, embody a certain feeling to try to get the audience to feel something. And so when we enter into a training program, and again, I can really only speak, I've talked to the conversations with other dancers turned Pilates instructors, but this is sort of in, in my opinion or my experience, you know, we are primed to look for those things. And in some ways, I think humans just in general are primed. You know, we have these, whether it's, in, you know, sort of indoctrinated with the culture, you know, we have these things that are considered beautiful or considered aesthetically pleasing. And so, you know, if I'm looking at a body trying to teach that body how to move well so they can lead a really robust life, whatever that means to them, you know, does it really matter if the foot is pointed? Does it matter if they're achieving that gorgeous line? So what happens if they do and that feels like shit on their bodies? So what are, and I think it's not a right or wrong or good or bad, because I definitely have clients who have also said to me in the studio during a session, 
wow, that was amazing. I just felt so elegant. I'm like, rock on. What's wrong with feeling elegant? What is wrong with having a beautiful aesthetic experience as you are going through the Pilates repertoire or a lunge that we could call fitness or gym or Pilates or whatever? There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. But I think where it becomes a bit problematic is where there's some confusion behind, okay, if we have something that, quote, you know, air quotes, quote unquote, looks beautiful, looks correct, but on that particular body, it doesn't feel good, or it's not mm -hmm. functional, or it's not reasonable, or it's not sustainable, then mm -hmm. what is it that we're really working towards, you know? Yeah, I agree. I think yeah. there's also the other area, the area where I find it most problematic is, you know, the aesthetic that, you know, we seem to have inherited is seems like a classical ballet aesthetic to me. Like it's not a Martha yeah, Graham in that. a sock sort of aesthetic. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, Gotta love her. Love Martha Graham. Um, but, you know, so, which, you know, which is about straight lines and even curves yeah. and, you know, languid yeah. movement. And it's like, well, if your body is not shaped in such a way as to be able to produce those shapes, like we, that's yes. just not achievable. Right? Like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Actually, um, yeah. So I, I think, and I feel like you guys, like you and Chloe, have discussed this before. So apologies for repeating a little bit of no, content and information. I, I, but I, I, one of the things that I, I've, I'm learning, and it, it's taken me a long time to learn, I'd say I'm still a learner in, on this, is that <laughs> just when, just because you say something to someone once, it's like, doesn't mean that. That's been communicated. You can cross that off your list and it's oh, yeah. done now on that. I think yeah. um, for these important ideas that are quite, you know, in some ways quite sort of antithetical to a lot of the way the industry mm -hmm. implicitly operates, I think, you know, a single a single conversation is nowhere near enough, you know, yeah. on this. Yeah. So it's sort of looping back around to the idea of like a dancer's body. There's actually been some really great um, New York Times articles. I feel like I sent you the links, but I can look back and maybe include them in the notes mm. if you guys are open mm. to that. Um, just about what constitutes a dancer's body and really looking at what that is. And I want to just preface what I'm going to say by saying that talking about like a genetic predisposition towards a talent of movement and dance in no way negates the like the super hard work, the dedication and the passion yeah. of dancers. Like, let me tell you, like, just because you're born with really long legs and a certain amount of external rotation and flexibility, it does not mean that you don't work your, you know, what off every day to make it happen. You know, dancers are amazing. They're scrappy, they're innovative, they're creative, and they're some of the hardest working people I've ever met in my whole life. Um, with that said, I was a trained classical dancer and I was told from the time that I was seven or eight years old that like, well, you're just not going to make it because your bum is too round and your lordosis is too much and, you know, all this stuff. And those are things beyond my control. So, you know, I do consider I never reached a pinnacle of dance and, you know, like working for a ballet company or anything like that, but I did have a dance career. It took some different avenues and some different forms. But I think that it's worth saying that there, it's like a funnel. You know, there are, there's a lot of people that go into the funnel and then what gets spit out of the other funnel, the other side of the funnel is like one person that does the thing really well. And I do, that's not 
that's also not um, exclusive to dance. That's like baseball or any gymnastics or any other like really elite sport or you know something expression of athleticism, where there are people that just have an innate talent and an innate physicality. I think where again where we run into some friction, I'm not going to say problem, but where we run into some friction with that is when. One, those bodies become the model of what the yeah. expression of a specific exercise should be. Because yeah. it's just like, one, it's not important. And two, like, you know, I'm never going to be six feet tall with super long legs and like my talus popping out of my foot, you know, so this gorgeous arch. That's just not my body. Right. And then the other part is if you go through teacher training and like that's kind of the picture you see in the manual. Yeah. And you're it's like, not oh, oh. Yeah, I was trying to be like a little like, it's the picture you see in the teacher manual. You see like some like skinny person, you know, like doing arabesque on the reformer. And you're like, oh my God, is that what I should be like aiming? And I'm being a little bit hyperbolic here, but like, you know, like, so the client who comes in is like, oh, I've had like really bad chronic low back pain and everything. And you're like, well, shit, like, how am I supposed to get that person who's having trouble sit to stand? And like, we're supposed to do that on the other end of it. So just having that nuance of understanding that there is nothing wrong with producing a shape that has a certain bias towards a certain aesthetic, but also realizing that it doesn't mean that any other expression of that shape or movement isn't as valid and also may indeed be more functional and more helpful to the person that you're teaching in front of you. Yeah, when I was going through my teacher training, uh, with Stop Pilates, you know, all the people in the manual, and they're, they're, I've met most of the people in the Stop Pilates manuals, and they're fantastic people and fantastic teachers, but, you know, most of them are ex-dancers, and, you know, you can tell when you're looking at them, yeah. and they're, they're doing the exercises and displaying, an, you know, well above average range of motion, for example. Yeah. And, and, and they got the hands, you know, they've got the, right, like, the, 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 little, like, the thing, yeah, the, the, the yeah. thing, you know. Yeah. It was funny because I was actually, I remember this little tidbit. I was listening. So you're like, how do they do that? Um, I was taught to do that with pencils. So you actually take your hand. This is a tip for anyone who wants ballet hands listening at home. <laughs> take your hand and you just thread a pencil through your fingers and then stick your hand out. And there you go. Or if you want balancing technique, then you make it, you're supposed to make it look like a rose. Huh. So that's my, that's my Pilates teaching tip to everyone. Super functional. How's that? Super. <laughs> oh, Raph, that's great. Look at you. I sort of see set that you up for set, devil, yeah. You're like, you're like it's actually like more like hang ten, yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that was a video. We digress. Day. And and if you if you're listening on a podcast app, we actually record these on video, and you can uh, check us out on YouTube and see all see okay. all the visuals. <laughs> um, so yeah, so hand placement going, very important. When, when I was going through my training, in fact, when I was teaching teachers for the first you know, for several years. I used to refer to people who have, you know, below ballet dancer level flexibility as having, quote, tight hamstrings. You know, oh, you can't oh, sit up straight, you know, you can't sit up straight in the spine oh, stretch wow. or the spine twist or whatever because you've got, quote, tight hamstrings. Tight actually, hamstrings. Subsequently, I learned that the average range of motion in the hip is 80 degrees. So it's like that Yeah, average so it's, person, it's like 75, 80 degrees, right? Yeah. yeah. So that just, if you can't sit up straight in a, in a spine twist, that just makes you normal. Right, yeah. makes you not a ballet dancer. <laughs> right, but but I was yeah. going through my training with all of these dancers and looking in the manuals at all the dancers. They were sitting up perfectly straight on their ischial tuberosities with their spines in, you know, right. 
perfectly you know stacked and I was sitting here all rounded and needed four blocks and and whatever to, yeah. <laughs> to straighten my legs and totally. I, and and I think we, well, we we promote we promote you know an idea of normal that is truly not normal yeah and I, I'm happy you know to say at least you know stateside and you know I think also like with COVID and everything like everything's just kind of a global cacophony of images and thoughts. And that's, that's a good thing. I think, you know, if there's one sort of thing that's come out of this shitstorm, it's that where we're hopefully becoming a little more interconnected. I don't know, maybe, um, you know, but well, also on the flip side I, of that. You and I are doing it right now. Damn. Yeah. This is interconnection. How cool is that? California. Yeah. It's like Tuesday over here. It's Wednesday where you are. Yeah. Totally cool. Um, yeah, the, and you know, those pictures, like I would be interested, I could be totally wrong, but for me, with who has always had a very limited range of motion, you know, I'm quite muscular and I was always, you know, trying to like stretch my, you know, get my, it just was never happening for me. I wasn't, I had more power when I was dancing. I would always like, you know, in ballet classes, oftentimes the men, or at least used to, I don't know if that's sort of, it's been a while, but the men used to go last. And so I would always like hang out with the dudes and like jump with the dudes because the music would slow down and they get more time in the air. And I had like big, big, quote unquote, big quads. And what's the word you guys are using? A couple of bulky, bulky, <laughs> it was bulky. <laughs> um, you know, so I'd be interested in those pictures to kind of talk to those people and be like, is that actually comfortable? Does that feel good to sit really tall on those ischial tuberosities? Like, because I, I feel that, you know, these things that are sort of cons these long languid movements that often look really delicious, even for dancers, for some of us, like, man, they do not feel delicious. And we're doing it because that's the job, you know, and happy to do it because that's the job. But not everything is sort of this, like, yum fest of gorgeousness <laughs> you know the what feeling an, yeah what a, what an inc what what a what a important and you know when you say it freaking blindingly obvious but not beforehand insight like dance looks easy but doesn't feel easy <laughs> and it, that's the trick yeah, right is definitely not all the decades. time <laughs> Totally. To and we've all easy. had those. Yeah. And I feel like, you know, people who are Pilates practitioners, you know, they, the beautiful thing about it is they might get a taste, you know, like a taste of that where like, you know, you've been practicing an exercise for a really long time and all of a sudden you just have this, like this moment, you know, and I don't even really know what to call it, like maybe embodiment or flow state or whatever it is. And you're like doing the thing, like, let's say you're doing like long stretch on the reform or something. And you just have this like thing. And I, my clients have told me before, they're like, I just feel like I'm floating. I just, it just feels so efficient and effortless. And I'm like, that's great. That's awesome. Like, that's like, that's super successful. You know, that's, mm. that's great. And I think that the, those moments, I can just say from my own personal experience, you know, dancing on stage, when you have those, they're, they're amazing. They're lovely, but it's mm. not that all the time. And so if that's what we're giving to the audience, that's, those are the shapes and the movement pathways we're making that convey that cool. Mm. Um, but if you go to interview some dancers, that's not <laughs> always the answer that you're going to get probably. Yeah. 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 So, all right. So, you know, so what can we as Pilates instructors out in the wild, you know, just teaching yeah. regular clients, you know, what can we do to, you know, su support and encourage both the dancers and the non-dancers 
you know, yeah. in, in, in our, in our, in amongst our clients. Yeah. Well, I think that just recognizing that there's, um, you know, like with any client that walks in the door and you say kind of like, you know, you have the chat and you're like, what are your goals and what can I help you with? And sort of, you know, you make a game plan in the beginning just to realize, or, and actually I should clarify, you're talking about like training dancers as like if I, oh. if a dancer were to come in as a client or sort of what no, I no, have I'm to do as a teacher as next like- dancer. Yeah, good question. I'm, I'm sort of more thinking like in a, in a situation where you've got more than one client, you know, with you, mm. whether that's online or in person. And, mm-hmm. you know, you're describing how you want the movement, you know. So like mm-hmm. when I first started teaching, I used to say, oh, let's see if you can move gracefully, slowly, this, that, mm-hmm. you know. And, and I think about it, those are all words from dance now, you know. Yeah. And, and so, so, and that's great for the dancers, but what about somebody who's just, just like moves like a, you know, bull in a china shop? you know, like me, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, yeah. that's, that, I mean, I can aspire to those things, but I can aspire as much as I want. I'm never going to be, you know, <laughs> I'm never going to hit that level. So, right. so yeah. So how do, how do we, how do we, but how do we, how do we, how do we also like, we've got dancers in our group sometimes who do move that yeah. way and we don't want to say, oh, you're doing it wrong. You know? Yeah. Um, so, so how do we, how do we encourage yeah, both of those groups of people at the same time? That's a great question. I think, you know, what's, and I also will just total transparency, like my practice is mostly private clients, but I taught a ton of group classes when I was teaching in New York, when I lived there, when I was dancing. You know, and I think that what it comes down to is just looking at people as humans, you know, and dancers, if a dancer is in a group, dancers gonna know what to do. They're gonna kind of know what they're going for qualitatively. Other people will as well, but they might have a different lens. And I think this is where that task-based cueing, external cueing really, really comes into play. So instead of saying like, you know, I want you to reach gracefully, you know, maybe just simply giving a direction. I want you to reach to the corner of the room and then letting people decide the quality that they want to do that with. And I, what I often do if I'm looking for a qualitative difference, um, I will still somehow give like a reference point. Like, can you imagine that you're moving through peanut butter? Can you imagine that your limbs are like air? Can you do one of these things that peop- that everyone can connect to so that you're not creating a hierarchy in your class where it's like this inside esoteric thing where like, well, some of you may get this. So the people that can move gracefully, you move gracefully and kind of to hell with everybody else. You know, I would safely say pretty much everyone, even if you really strongly dislike peanut butter, you probably know what it is and you probably know that it's like really sticky and moving through it would feel effortful. Um, That's an assumption I'm making. So I feel that that is a good tactic to kind of level the playing field. And then also in a more private setting, you know, just recognizing like, you know, everyone's going to have different goals and training is a, is goal specific to a certain extent mm-hmm. and it's task specific. So I, my special, my sort of area of expertise and specialty is not working with dancers. You know, I mostly am sort of in that like 40 to 65 age group sort of recovering from various stuff as a lot of Pilates instructors are. But I know some instructors, particularly in New York, that specifically work with dancers and they're amazing. And what's really amazing about watching them work with that particular client base or demographic is the training looks really different. And I think that's where, as much as we want to be able to serve a vast population, having 
the ability to niche down a little bit and to understand kind of your ideal client. That's sort of almost like segues into like more of a business mm-hmm. talk, but mm-hmm. like looking at your ideal client and not limiting, but just saying, hey, I'm really interested in this and I'm going to put some of my mental resources and my continuing education into working this population mm-hmm. of people and understanding that the you know, the teaching techniques that you learn, even sort of like the biomechanical lens that you have to adorn when you're looking at those people is going to be different. You know, I remember this brilliant physical therapist I was seeing when I was sort of winding down my dancing in New York and she had worked with um, a lot of New York City ballet dancers and I was seeing her for a different problem. And, um, and I remember talking to her and I was just like, I had stopped ballet training when I was 16. And so I'd transitioned into some more contemporary modern dance. And I was like, oh my gosh, those ballet dancers, they just must be wrecked. You know, I was probably like 20 something years old and I was seeing this person for some pain. And she was like, Jocelyn, their bodies adapt. You know, I feel kind of silly telling you this, Raphael, but you know, just like, she's like, you'd be really surprised. You know, the body's really adaptable. You know, fast forward almost 20 years later, I'm like, oh yeah, the body's really adaptable. (laughs) And it will adapt to the task. She was super ahead of her time. She was amazing. So that was a good little nugget for me to have just also in terms of like, okay, well, so if I'm going to choose to work with that population, I'm going to have to understand that specific kind of adaptability as opposed to working with people who maybe their 55 Pilates or the 55 minute Pilates session, that's the only movement they're getting in a week, you know, it's going to be, it's the, the things we do are going to look really different. Mm. And I I want to, I'm keen to get into the, the business conversation in a second, but I, I just want to yeah. round out by by reflecting on the irony that Joseph Pilates himself moved in such an ungraceful, undancer-like <laughs> way. Like the, the man's movement was staccato, you know, kind of rigid, yes. robotic, herky-jerky, you know, yeah. like very, very ungraceful in my view. Yeah. Um, I would you know, agree. And we'll post a... a, a couple of links to youtube clips of joseph doing doing the exercises um yeah yeah which you know which is it's and it's you know understanding the whole history you know after reading cage line and talking to john Steele about how romana kind of became the 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 torchbearer after joseph passed away uh and you know that's when the ballet thing came in you know that's when the whole aesthetic you know came into it and you know like you, like we said, it's neither a good nor a bad thing. It's just a thing. Right. Um, but it's it's interesting that um, to me that uh, you know that the the ballet kind of thing has become so embedded and so sticky within the Pilates kind of yeah. ethos. It, it's really it. I think most people, are in, I believe, couldn't tease apart where dance ends and Pilates starts. No, and I think it's even like, you know, that the subtleties of, you know, what, you know, when I started getting Pilates teacher jobs, I did not interview, I auditioned. You auditioned and you learned the repertoire. I auditioned. Yeah. I do not go to work at a gym. The, the space I own that has Pilates equipment in it is a studio. Yeah. You know, just these subtle little things that, mm. again, there's no judgment call on them, but they're there. And what's also so interesting, and I think, you know, you know, Cage Line, 
just read Cage Lion. If you haven't read Cage Lion, just read Cage Lion. <laughs> Please read it. It's awesome. Um, you know, it's interesting the role that Romana played just historically, and I'm not a Pilates historian, but, you know, to look at the other people that were around Joseph Pilates, you know, I, I, he was hanging out with a lot of modern dancers too. There was Ted Sean, there was Hanya Holm, there was Ruth St. Dennis, you know, he built a studio up at Jacob's Pillow, like, which is, um, a space where a lot of different dance happens up in the Berkshires in the U.S. And so I, I think it's interesting the things that stuck, yeah. you know, and also <laughs> dancers I'm, I'm, start, a lot of dancers start doing Pilates before they even know it's Pilates. It is embedded yeah, in dance yeah, warmups yeah, to the point yeah. where there is, it's just a seamless, like, yeah, that huh. was my introduction to Pilates. I had no idea what I was doing. I was like, oh, I guess I'll do this ab thing when I'm 16 because that's go. what we're doing. Yeah, right. um, and it, it, that's that's fascinating that you bring that up because I've seen that footage of Ted Sean. In fact, we used a lot of that as the basis of of uh, figuring oh, so out the awesome. uh, the controlology repertoire. Because in my view, oh, there's a there's a oh, great YouTube that. clip of Ted Sean and an unknown other male dancer doing the the controlology yeah. series. Um, and I'm I'm about ninety eight percent certain it's Joseph Pilates behind the camera. You know, because you, when when they're doing boomerang, I think. Uh, he kind of pokes his head into frame for about three frames and you can say, ah, there's Joseph. Oh, but, cool. Um, That's so awesome. But there's Ted Sean and and this other man who's a, obviously a dancer as well in Ted Sean's troupe being coached mm-hmm. by Joseph Pilates himself, in my view, um, and they move like Joseph, you know, kind of herky-jerky, start-stop, yeah. you know, rigid legs. And it's like these people are dancers, so that presumably they can move however the heck they want to move, you know. Yeah. But, but – but they're choosing to move in this sort of Joseph-like, you know, nineteenth yeah. century gymnastics drill instructor sort of. Totally, way. and that was kind of te- that was like sort of Ted Sean specific. Like that was a little just you know, it's where I'm like, oh, right, I do have a master's degree in dance. Did learn this stuff a thousand years ago. Um, yeah. You know, he was like he like did all these pieces about like Olympians and like people waving flags, and it was very like nineteen thirties bronze statue biceps. You know, this like man lives the men dancing shirtless you know so it you know but it's interesting that like so pilates first and like arabesque on the reformer that stuck so maybe it was just the proximity to influence or the fact that romana had the studio in new york or it was later on so it's more current but like the ted sean thing didn't really seem to stick. No. So I, I need to learn more about this. This is, you're piquing my interest. It's super interesting yeah. from a historical perspective. Yeah. It is. It's interesting. Also, he was a man. Yeah. He was yeah. a dude. Like, you yeah. know, like we don't often, I mean, I'm talking to you and you're a man, but, you know, just in terms of who we think about exists in Pilates spaces, that's changing, thank goodness. But who we think about existing in Pilates spaces is like, you know, a legging clad I recognize the irony of me saying this, like some sort of like mildly petite person, usually identifying as female, wearing leggings, you know, like doing leg circles or whatever. <laughs> so, right. But yeah. but that's not to say that, you know, if you're a petite female identified legging wearing person who likes leg circles, yeah. that you shouldn't be doing Pilates. Like that's awesome. No, you, know? you should. Yeah. We should just, yeah. we should just be inviting like all the other people to the party too. Yeah, yeah, like make it like a really interesting cocktail mixer, you know, yeah. like not a boring party. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, totally. All right. So let's, let's uh, shift 
gears into the the conversation about business. So tell tell me your thoughts yeah. on the, the whole dance business model and how that's been inherited. Oh my gosh, yeah. Ugh. Okay. Well, you know the dance business model is tricky because like a lot of other industries, over the industry, there's so many different subsets, and I think there's so many ways that people can identify and exist as a dancer. So I pulled up like some stats which were kind of interesting to read as a former freelance dancer. because so I was like, oh, wow, that's not my story at all, but cool, that seems to be on the Bureau of Labor Statistics, so we'll just go with that. So they were kind of looking at like the average salary. I think the, it was from like 2019, so probably pre-COVID. Average salary for a dancer in the US is about 30,000 US per year. Average hourly wage, about $19 per hour US dollars. Um, which is interesting because it's like, I'm like, well, where are you taking these averages from? Like, who are you actually <laughs> talking to about this stuff? But so people don't, you know, dancers, I don't think anyone gets into dance thinking that they're going to be like rich and famous. You do it because you love it and you do it because it's a passion. Um, so I feel like that's kind of just an important marker to sort of say, okay, this is the average. And I think that's looking at the average of people who are dance teachers as well as professional dancers, freelancers, people who have contracts, Broadway people. They're just like looking at anybody who engages in the dance world and sort of like what they're making. So I feel like that's a good, again, no judgment about like how much people make or their decisions or income or people's choices to live their life. But when we consider a money mindset, or taking people who are accustomed to a certain way of existing in a professional environment and put them in a different way of existing in a professional environment or the people who have created the business model if they were dancers and so that's the world they were living in and now they're studio owners and I'm talking about like historically a long time ago and the practices that they sort of developed and continue to enforce um, you know, that's not the story that's necessarily true for Pilates. You know, like, I think that there is more money in Pilates than people think there is. There is a way to exist. Again, I don't think anyone goes into Pilates being like, I'm going to be Jeff Bezos because I'm teaching Pilates. You know, like, I, I, I think there's, there's a degree of it feeling like a calling, feeling like it's a passion. Um, but I do think that some of this scarcity mindset around teaching and making a decent livable wage in Pilates, some of it can be traced back to some practices in the dance world. So they can get a little more specific Fuck about yeah. that. I am so with you on this now. Yeah. I don't I mean, I don't know yeah. <laughs> I don't know anything about how the dance world works. Um, but I, yeah. I know yeah. I know about the music world. I, I was a musician yeah. all through my, like, professional. And okay. I put air quotes around that because probably 30000 a year was about what I earned, you know. It's probably <laughs> would have been better off, you yeah. know, bussing tables. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. You know, but, or you do both. Who needs right. sleep? You don't need right. sleep. You um, just rehearse all day. Then you work in a restaurant all night. And then you, like, you perform on your weekends off. You know, it's right. totally sustainable. Right. 100%. Um, and, yeah. you know, like dance, I think, you know, most people who are musicians, you know, consider it a calling and and right. feel like it's, it's such an honour, it's such a privilege, it's such a great pleasure to be able to perform in front of people and get paid for it. Like, that's incredible. And it's like, oh, oh you only paid me, you know, $19 an hour. 
oh, what do I care? Because I thank like, you, know, you so I'm much for paying me nineteen dollars an yeah. hour. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and I think yeah. that's one of the things I was thinking about too. Where it's you know, again, I could really only speak for myself, but I lived in the dance world for a very, very long time. Um, there's this thing about when you go on an audition and you get a dance gig and you you get the job, and it's like you are just or I, whatever person, the dancer, is just so elated. It's like, oh my God, I got mm. the job. Mm. And probably the same musician. I would have, yeah. you know, my father's a musician, so I think I have a little bit of touch point with that. But you know, just you got the gig. It's like mm. I won. I won the lottery. Mm. I get to oh wow. You know, there's so much competition. I remember going to cattle calls with six, seven hundred dancer, mm. you know, it's for one job. So the thought of being like so when's my break? <laughs> mm, mm, mm. So how much am I getting paid? Um, do I get benefits? Like, do I get, is there like a 401k situation here? You know, all of this stuff, that's not what you're thinking about. Mm. And I think some of that is a younger dancer. Some of that just comes with youth, you know, not to sound patronizing, but it's the truth, you know? And so as you become older, I think if I had stuck around in the dance world longer, like past my early thirties, I probably would have gotten a little savvier about grant writing and asking for money and funding and sort of crafting my life in a different way. Mm -hmm. um, but when we, when that's your experience in terms of being an employee or, in, or interacting with an employer, which could either be a studio director or a choreographer, you kind of don't know how to advocate for yourself in another business environment. And especially when that studio environment is kind of embedded with some stuff that maybe isn't so great either, then we run into some issues of feeling that the actual job is not sustainable, which is a mm. shame. Mm. Yeah. I think, um, you know, I'm, there are many, I think there are many issues at play there. And I agree with you about, you know, the, the youth piece, you know, when I was 22, yeah. I didn't know nothing about nothing. Um, and, uh, you know, also I think now in the, in the internet era, uh, it is becoming easier for people to make their, you know, make their own way. Like I think about, you know, yes. when, when I was back in the sort of 1990s and 2000s, when I was, um, you know, playing music full time, the only avenue to make a living was, you know, for 99% of people was you, you play at, you know, events or, you know, mm -hmm. bars or whatever. And that's like, you know, $80 a gig sort of thing. Right. Um, and, or, you know, if you were just incredibly lucky, talented, hardworking, and just like all the planets lined up, then you get to release some kind of thing and, you know, it sells, you know, lots, right. But that is like 1% yeah. of 1% of 1% of, right. of, of people. Um, but now, and you were sort of like, if you wanted to release, you were kind of beholden to the system. You had to go through a record label and, you know, they were the gatekeepers and they advanced you a certain amount. And then they kept, you know, like 80% of the profits and, yeah. you know, you know, gave you 20%, 20 cents per album or whatever that they sold for $30. But now yeah. like there, there are musicians that have actually found ways to, you know, like you alluded to with grant writing and creating things yeah. for yourself. Like there's a group I, I follow called Scary Pockets and they're just a covers band, right? They just play other people's funk tracks. Just a, yeah. just a group of musicians in LA and it's not even the same people every time. It's just two guys um, and they just have a revolving oh. – so, so one guy plays keyboards, one plays guitar, then they have a revolving crew of drummers, bass players – 
keyboard players, awesome. guitarists, singers, and and they re- released these funk covers of non-funk songs, right? So they release like Johnny Cash songs or Fleetwood Mac songs or whatever, but they do funk versions of them. And they've got like I've got them up here on YouTube. They've got a couple who've got like multiple million downloads per yeah. episode. So. You know, I mean, I don't know exactly how the YouTube algorithm works, but I can only imagine they're making pretty decent money out of Probably, YouTube yeah. monetization there, you know. And there are some dancers that are kind of sort of exploring similar avenues to it. Again, you know, it's been a long time since I've done stage performing, but, you know, there are some people who have huge Instagram followings and are, like, making not reels, like Instagram reels, but actually, like, making short dance for cameras and putting them up and getting patronized for their work and it's awesome mm-hmm. i mean i that's that's where i said before like dancers are scrappy like yeah. they are yeah. gonna find a way to get their work out there mm-hmm. and that's a beautiful beautiful thing yeah i think though um yeah. like you say in pilates uh because even though sort of aesthetically and culturally pilates has a lot of that dance sort of dna um, actually, Pilates is part of the fitness industry. It's not part of the dance industry. And so, so yep. from a from a business, you know, mechanically in, in terms of the way the business works, you know, um, yeah. you know, customers come and pay us a fee to do a session. It's like that's not how dance performances work, you know. Yeah. Um, from a financial perspective, actually, you know, you c- it is possible to make really good money in the Pilates business. But, and this is... You know, this just boils my blood, and I, you know, I, really, I want, I want to, I want to be part of changing this. Get on it, Raf. Do it. Uh, that, <laughs> like so many Pilates instructors, in my view, have a, a a mentality like you know musicians and dancers, like we said, it's like it's a calling. I'm passionate about this. It's an honor that I get to do this. Therefore, you know, and they see it as kind of a dichotomous situation. There's like, if I if I feel that way about it, then I shouldn't make money at it. You know, I shouldn't expect to make money. In yeah. fact, I should I should expect not to make money at it. You know, like if I yeah. go to make money, it's very that's, pious. Oh, it drives me bananas. <laughs> yeah, it drives me. It drives me crazy too. And I think that there's this thing too. Of just you know, this isn't so much dance. This is just like my pet peeve. It's like you're not taking advantage of anybody. You know, if you price your services well, and you know, there are people who are far more learned in this than I, you know, like I love listening to Leslie, Jenna, the people who you've had on the podcast before, you know, they're amazing. And they've really put in the hours to make very succinct, clear message around this. And I, I really appreciate their work. Um, And I'm right there with them where it's like, if you're pricing your services correctly and by pricing your services correctly, I mean like correctly so that you can eat, so you can live, so you can pay your rent where you live. You know, if you're looking at your clientele and then you get that, like, reciprocal happiness like someone pays you for the session you give a great session woohoo everyone wins you know and I I think that you know looping back to the dance world it's just a completely different model it's still a model of sort of what I what I call or what, what other people would call just like patronage you know you're it's grant writing it's this it's it's not like I mean we're not really in a retail business but like we're we're exchanging a specific service for a specific rate. And so it it's more like transactions that are happening. And at least in my understanding of the way funding of the dance world works, that doesn't happen. You know, they have ticket sales and you have seasoned sort of supporters, especially in the ballet world. You know, they'll support a season, you buy season tickets. But really the money is coming from people who really want to support dance. And thank goodness they want to support dance so we can have dance and 
these rock star athletes have some place to perform. That's awesome. But it's just, it's an entirely different model. So when that model gets sort of infiltrated or superimposed, or it's kind of, well, this is the way we've always done things <laughs> in the Pilates world, then we're not reimagining how to have a healthier business model separate mm. from kind of like the patronage model, if that makes yeah. any sort of uh, sense. hundred percent. Yeah. I think, yeah, for people, you know, and if you're listening to this, you know, and you've got a, you've got a business or a Pilates, you know, career where you're not making a lot of money. It's like, I'm not having a go at you, but, and, and if you genuinely don't want to make money, well, you know, freaking awesome. You know, great for you. But it's my belief. I mean, I've, I've been poor, right? I've, I spent my twenties and thirties as a musician eating freaking two minute noodles five nights a week. And, you know, all the, Driving around in yeah. a shitty and the, car. In the, in the States, we call it top ramen. You eat top right. ramen. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, and, and now, I, you know, in my early 50s, I'm 50, I just turned 50 this year, I have a business that generates $5 million of revenue. We have 36 staff. You know, like, I'm, I'm, I don't know if I think of myself as rich, but I'm certainly comfortable and we've, you know, we, yeah. we have a profitable business. And I've been, so I've been, I guess I, I've been poor and I've been rich and I'll tell you which one I fucking prefer, you know, <laughs> like, yeah. Um, yeah. and, you know, it's really tough at the moment with COVID and with, you know, with lockdowns and with, um, uh, you know, restrictions on the number of people you can have in a given amount of space and with public, you know, concern about, you know, health and, and all of that stuff. It's yeah. really, really tough, but people are finding ways to make money, you know, People are yes, people are. are are finding ways to make money. People are making lemonade out of these lemons. They're doing online sessions. They're you know they're doing all kinds of different things that they weren't doing two years ago. Yeah. And and it is you know people still need to move. People still need to be healthy. Absolutely. You know? And people want to be told you know to a certain extent I think too. And this is very separate from the sort of the subject we're talking. But just you know and what I found transitioning to an online studio is that, especially in times of sort of, that feel very chaotic, a movement practice, you know, whether you're a dancer, whether you're a Pilates practitioner, whatever, is like one of the most securely grounding things that I think people mm. have. And, you know, my, my model and my tiny little business is I really try to promote people having standing appointments. It works for me. I'm here five days a week teaching. That's what works for my business. It's not gonna work for everybody. So when we went online, I was just like, this is what we're doing, people. Of course you're keeping your once a week session or your twice a week session. Um, why wouldn't you? So, and, and not like, I'm so great and you need me all the time, but just like, this is your practice. And unless yeah. there is some other reason, like you lost your job or there was a lot of people that had a lot of you know negotiation with children and childcare and all these things, but you know, Actually, we can loop this back into the dance thing. You know, I think that's one positive thing about a little bit of the dance world and Pilates. And I can't speak for other fitness modalities because I don't really exist in them. But the idea that this is a practice or whatever you want to call it, and that what we're doing is something that doesn't necessarily have this like pinnacle goal, I've reached it, so now I'm going to stop doing it. But that this is a this is progress over perfection. This is a practice that we engage with that has to change. 
you know? And so like I was a dancer in New York that had no money. I couldn't afford to go to class sometimes. Guess what? I found a way to train on my own. Sometimes it was in my living room in Brooklyn, you know, with my four other roommates. So I think that that's not like, I'm so amazing, so I did that. But it is something that I'm happy I had that experience. That's a positive thing that I can give to my clients and say, hey, maybe it's not gonna look like the, the craziness that I did, but I know that this is gonna improve your life. And I know mm -hmm. that you doing this regularly and you staying committed to your practice, even though it looks really different, is gonna be beneficial to you. And then mm -hmm. on the flip side, business-wise, it's beneficial to me, which is beneficial to them because I can yeah. stay open, yeah. you know? Well, I mean, that's, I mean, yeah. that's the whole, the whole thing about business is it's it's it creates value for both the person delivering yeah. the service and the person purchasing the service right so the clients are better yeah. off and the business owner is better off everyone's better off right if the clients yeah. stay at home and don't exercise they're not better off <laughs> you know yeah um and, yeah. and so by by you know doing everything you can to get them in those sessions you're actually doing them a favor as well as doing Absolutely. yourself a favor yeah wow this is awesome Let's take a quick break. Posture is a massive part of how Pilates is taught, and there are so many myths and misconceptions surrounding posture, like does it actually relate to muscle balance or pain or anything? Well, I've just written an ebook called Three Myths About Posture in Pilates, and in it I share the science on posture, what's true and what's a myth, and you might be surprised. In It's free to download. Just use the link in the show notes. Uh, now, our mission is to empower you with science-based tools to become a better, more effective, more successful, and happier instructor, and this ebook is a great place to start. So you can find the download link in the show notes, and uh, I hope you enjoy it. Okay, let's get back to the episode. You know, I see a lot of, and this, you know, makes makes me kind of <laughs> upset as well, is... <laughs> Um, I see a lot of people, you know, and it, it comes from such a kind place, right? It's come from such a place of love and care and compassion that people in the Pilates world, you know, are giving away stuff at the moment. You know, in COVID, like so many free classes online, so many $5 classes Please online. Stop. And, and, but the thing is, it's coming from such a place of like wanting to help people. It's like, oh, people have lost their job, people who have, you know, can't afford it. It's like, you know, all of that stuff, which which I think isn't such an admirable sentiment, but I think it's so freaking misplaced. Here's the yeah. thing. Who does Pilates? Mostly professionals, knowledge workers, who and who hasn't lost their job in COVID? Knowledge workers who can work from home, right? So if, yep. if you're a knowledge worker, you're probably working from home, earning the same six-figure income you were earning yeah. pre-COVID. Probably saving, now, saving a now, little bit of dough because you're, yeah, not, going you're not, out, going out, not going out, not traveling, restaurants, yeah. not traveling, you know, like not not driving yeah, your car. Not, like you've got all this extra cash, right? And and now, now you, know, you know who needs Pilates in this time? Who those people could patronize? Dancers. No, I'm joking, but you know, a little bit. But it's it's that same model of like. Restaurant employees, dancers, freelance artists, you know, these, you know, if there's, if you want to have a model where you're giving back a little bit, you know, like maybe you bump up your prices a little and then say, hey, now I have this little bit of a nest egg that I can give to the people who actually need it right now. Right. Yeah. And, and, and that's, that's what we do, right? So we have this really profitable business that, you know, we serve people and we, we charge, you know, a, a, an amount that makes it worth our while and worth their while 
you know, so everyone's mm-hmm. a winner. And now I have time and capacity to give stuff back like this podcast, which we do for free yeah. every week. And that's because I don't have to see clients all day just to pay the rent, you know. Yeah. So now I have the luxury of, of, of spending, I spend seven hours on a Wednesday, every Wednesday recording podcasts and Q&As I and mean, it's all free, you know. That's awesome. So, yeah. But that, that's not because I'm some great philanthropist. It's like, well, I can afford that. That's a luxury, you know, that I yeah. that and I you've built and you've built it into your business yeah. model. So I think that's another thing too, you know, with yeah, it's um the the business plan, the business model is if I'm gonna, you know, kind of make a hokey like dance analogy or something, it's like it's like you're choreographing a dance. You know, you really you have to just sit down and kind of solve the problem and make it work and fit in the things that are important to you. Yeah, which I think sometimes people there's like there's a calculator I think you know you sort of like divide your weeks by your this and by your that and do the thing and then you come up with this hourly number and sometimes you look at it and you go ah <laughs> how am I going to make that per hour and then you just build you build up to it slowly yeah. so that you can kind of incorporate the other things you want to do with your life yeah I think the um I'm interested to know your experience with this because my view is that uh in terms of raising prices is that the main yeah if not the only limitation to how high your prices are is your own fear about yeah. You know, asking for that, you know, basically being able to say the number with a straight face, you know, yeah. is, is the problem. And confidently, you know, and I think, and I think also too, just sort of it, not just coming like out of the blue, you know, like not necessarily giving people warning, but just saying, you know, okay, very clearly, these are the reasons. No, you don't have to look at my books, but this is what I'm going to do every year, every two years. And just say like, this is what it is. And, you know, be open to having those individual conversations with clients that maybe that one off, it's not going to be possible for whatever reason. And just knowing that like any other situation or industry, there are nuances, there's, there's a touch of gray area, um, but also staying steadfast in kind of your resolve <laughs> to be like, this is what needs to happen for my business to stay healthy. So if my business is not healthy, I can't keep you healthy. So that's sort of so, my, that's my little tagline I give people when I do a price increase. I need to keep my biz healthy so I can keep you healthy or help so did, keep you healthy. Did you go through, did you, was there a point where you kind of increase your prices significantly? So I'm imagining you're doing like, you know, annual or whatever price increases to keep up with the cost of living index. But was there a time where you realized, huh, I'm way undercharging and I need to put my prices up? Not necessarily. I think that, you know, when I was first starting out teaching in New York, I was actually, I started doing mat work and I was going to people's homes. Um, and so what's interesting, I did my research being like the super kind of like crazy type A person that I am. And I was like, okay, this is like the going rate. And I looked at personal trainers. I actually looked at other industries and I was kind of like, okay, like, again, thinking about way back when, okay, like I'm a dancer. There's a lot of dance and Pilates. Like, what does this mean for the business? Like, what am I actually what are the assumptions I'm working off of? So I started to look at like, okay, well, what is that personal trainer charging to go to that person's home on the Upper East Side? Okay, well, maybe I need to be like a little more aligned with that because my education is a little bit more than that person. You know, like what value am I offering to the client? So what actually ended up happening is I inherited some clients from other instructors or they were kind of cleaning house or whatever. And so that was the point where I felt like I was undercharging, where it was... 
I had to kind of come up with a reasonable midline because mm -hmm. the other, I hate throwing people under the bus, but it, I reckon it, like the other teachers that I was kind of inheriting clients from, they were significantly undercharging. And so I came in with sort of my business model, even for my tiny little business, which was running around with a bag in New York City to people's apartments and teaching Pilates in their homes. Um, knowing that I had to get paid for my travel time. I had to, you know, there were a bunch of other things that needed to be built into that hourly rate. So, but I also kind of knew that if I were going to do like 150% increase, I might lose that client. So that's where it becomes like, okay, I need to give a little. And then if I'm planning on, you know, hopefully this person will stay with me for a couple of years. So if I want to do this for a couple of years, then I can like incrementally mm -hmm. increase. Um, in terms of my business now, I feel like I set a very fair price um, and I increase either every year. I didn't do one via when COVID was happening just because there was way too much shifting. So I just decided to kind of keep things as they were. Um, but because what I'm comfortable with in my model, I, I have a very small private studio. I just have space for duets. And so I really um, encourage my clients to be regular in their practice. So I have a lot of clients that come two to three times per week. So I do recognize the financial investment they're making in those sessions. So that also influences the way that I price my sessions too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's, mm -hmm. it's, I, I, I feel like I have a very stable business. Um, so I don't know if you were to talk to somebody else, you know, maybe down the road and they were kind of like wanting a bunch of new clients to come in, they might want to charge a higher hourly rate for just those drop-in mm -hmm. sessions as opposed to, you know, people purchasing packages or whatever. Mm. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, there's no one just like in. There is you know, no there's, one way. There's there, no one yeah. way, right? So no. it depends on what's no. important to you and if stability and predictability, yeah. it, you know, regularity yeah. is important. And, you know, obviously you've got to pay your mortgage or your rent and, you know, put right. your kids through school and all of that. Totally. But, but, you know, it's not like, you know, they who, you know, make the most money win. It's it's no. they, they who create a lifestyle that they love, you know. Yeah. Yeah, and, a play, and hopefully a place, you know, whether it's your own studio or you're working for somebody else, a place where you walk in and you feel, like, proud and happy to be yeah. there. You know, and I also, when I was teaching in New York, I was still, you know, dancing not a ton, but enough. And so part, it was hard for me to have that consistency to build up that clientele, which is part of the reason why I taught mm -hmm. more group classes. You know, so I think, you know, obviously we would like to cultivate a following because that leads to sustainable income. Um, but depending on what else you're doing in your life, if Pilates is not, Pilates is not your full-time career, you're kind of, you know, like... I want to dance or I want to be a musician or I'm a lawyer and I teach Pilates on the weekends or whatever, the, whatever it looks like, you know, to recognize that and to be okay with it. I've taught with a ton of people who were still, you know, they would go off for six weeks and they would dance in a musical on tour and then they would come back and teach at the studio. Those were not necessarily the instructors that had like super regular clientele, they kind of had to build back up. You know, they had a few people that were willing to sort of ride with them as they were going to go perform and then come back. Um, it just, it looks different mm. and different is fine. Mm. Yeah. Another interesting thing that I've noticed in myself um, in relation to pricing is that um, 
you know, I, I consider myself someone who does this as a calling and I, you know, I love what I do and I just get an immense amount of satisfaction. You know, I, I don't teach clients these days. I, I spent 15 years doing that, but now I, now I days I teach teachers and I just love it. You know, I, I, I really yeah. feel passionate and excited, engaged in flow when I'm teaching. Um, you know, so in, in some, in some respects, I would still do it if I didn't get paid because I just love it so much. But, in an, it, you know, what I've noticed in myself is that, you know, we've put our prices up over the years um, quite mm. a bit. Um, you know, when we first started out, we were way undercharging. And, I, you know, I didn't know anything about business and I didn't hand on the numbers yeah. and, you know, all of that stuff. And I was like, oh, we've got so many clients, and, but how come we don't have any money in the bank? You know? <laughs> That's great. <laughs> I'm so busy. That must mean I'm successful. <laughs> Um, and, and, and what I observed is that as we've put the prices up, I've actually become more motivated to produce high quality outcomes for my students. Now I didn't think that would be possible because I thought I'm so passionate about this. I love it so much that I'm just absolutely giving my all to it and I don't care how much money I make. Right, but now that I'm charging double what we used to charge, I actually feel like oh, even more motivated. I feel like duty bound because we're charging, you know, a good price. Yeah. I feel like no, I really owe it to these people to give them the best possible education. Yeah. So I've actually noticed that even in myself, just an improvement in the quality of the work that I do as a result of charging more, which you know really surprises me in hindsight because. You know, if you'd asked me five years ago, you know, could you improve the quality of your work if you tried a bit harder? I'll be like, no, I'm freaking work 15 hours a yeah, day already. Maxed you know? out. Yeah. Yeah. But but no, yeah. there was there was more in the tank there, and and I discovered that by just by just you know being able to say the number with a straight face, and then yeah. thinking, shit, now I better deliver on that. You know. <laughs> like, yeah. Well, and I think that's also really a really interesting and. In- and great way to, you know, kind of keep things fresh and just sort of seeking new information and updating. And also, you know, less about like, oh, I have so much money in the bank now, so everything's going to be fine and I'm going to be happy because, you know, that's not really, sometimes they don't equate (laughs) each other. Um, But a way to avoid burnout, I would imagine too, so that you just, you feel that reciprocity again, where it's like, okay, well, this is, I'm charging a bit more so I have to level up. And then at least for myself, when I level up and I get those extra bits of information, I learn something new. I feel like I want to deliver more to my clients. Then it's an energizing experience mm. for me. Mm. I feel like I'm engaging, even though it's just, it's me in my studio, <laughs> sometimes online with a group of people, but mostly just with a client. I feel like I'm engaging with my craft and my industry in a more robust way. And I agree with you. I don't know if I would feel that if I felt that I was undercharging and looking at my business bank account every month and feeling like, oh man, I worked so much and now what? You know, I don't know if I would, I think it assists with the drive and I hope that doesn't sound greedy. It's just more that it, it gives me license to be able to grow. hundred mm, yeah. percent. I don't think it sounds greedy. Me personally. Okay, cool. Think, Charge more. Uh, People yeah. listening, up your prices. Make it reasonable. Do it. Yeah. <laughs> Reach out um, on Instagram if you're like, 
but I don't want to. And I'll be like, it's okay, just do it. Here's some business coaches for you. I'm not a business coach. Here's some other people you can talk to. <laughs> um, I bought a book recently, a few months ago, by a guy called Blair Entz. Um, he's not in okay. the Pilates space. He's in design. He's a visual visual designer and he owns a visual design firm and he he's actually moved out of visual design into teaching business to visual designers so he basically teaches people how to make money as visual designers Um, and his book is called price and creativity um no affiliation oh this is amazing these these people um and and so he's basically he's basically saying you should charge on value not on time right so don't charge per hour charge by the value that you deliver and um this book which i'm holding in my hands was three hundred dollars us three zero zero dollars us right he's delivering a lot of value (laughs) well i've easily made more than three hundred dollars from the stuff i learned in this that's amazing Um, but like he was, he was, you know, basically, you know, he got a lot of YouTube and podcasts and all that stuff where I I'd engaged with him and learned about his philosophy and, you know, he basically his thesis yeah, yeah, is yeah. charge more, right? Yeah. <laughs> that, that's the base. Yeah. yeah. There's a lot of nuance to it and there's a lot of layers and you should buy the book, but, um, you know, at the bare, bare bones, it's like, yeah, charge more. Um, and then yeah. I looked up the book and I was actually impressed that it was $300, because if his whole message is charge more and then there's a dollar ninety nine on it's like twenty five bucks or something, you'd yeah, be like, oh, yeah. whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Who right. cares? It, yeah. It, it, he's not he's not taking his own medicine. Um, yeah. but yeah, I was impressed by that. Yeah, I think these are subjects and conversations, you know, I know that I'm kind of like in like dan- like da- dancer Pilates, dancer Pilates like mind um, for this conversation, but just, you know, in general, these these industries that exist kind of not necessarily on the fringe, but, you know, we don't think of like Pilates and dance and music, even though Pilates is of the fitness world, which is just bajillions of dollars industry that has a whole machine behind it, just selling a bunch of stuff to people all the time. Pilates is this kind of like weird subsection, I feel in some ways. Um, These are conversations that people need to get comfortable having. They need to be comfortable learning this information. And I think that it needs to feel very applicable. Um, and to be perfectly honest, they were very uncomfortable for me and they still are a little bit. And some of that probably is my personality, but a lot of it goes back to just that, like dance for me, dancer mentality of we, you know, the powers that be will bestow upon you what you deserve based on how much work you put in. Oh, and by the way, you should spend a ton of money. That's <laughs> something we did really, you know, like dance training as classical musician training or whatever is very expensive. And so the investment, you know, it's, it's, a, it's tricky there. Yeah. It gets really, really tricky. Yeah. Um, and that's not something I feel that is beneficial to carry over. You know, I don't, I really, I love my clients. I value our relationships I firmly believe that what I am offering to them is worth the price that I am charging. And I do not feel that they are bestowing upon me some patronage. They're not patronage. I feel that, yeah, I feel that they are my clients. We have wonderful, meaningful relationships. We collaborate together. I learn a ton from them. Um, 
but I am confident that the service that I'm offering warrants the price I am charging. Mm. And I, I would I would say, um, you know, just back to what you said, you know, that physiotherapist said to you in, in New York about the dancers is that like, yeah, I think for most of us it is uncomfortable to have those conversations, to put an extra zero on the end of your prices, to, you know, whatever it might be, yep. but that we can adapt and you, you we know, can adapt. We, we get better. Yeah. And studio culture can adapt too. And, you know, I, I made the choice for many reasons to, I had independent contractors working for me and I made the choice to not bring them on as employees. But I think as this conversation continues and the Pilates industry starts to change, we don't have to be we can keep the parts that are really great and really positive. And then we can say just like a thank you and goodbye to the parts that are not. Mm. <laughs> and I, I, I don't know if the employee model, how like globally that's going to fit. You know, I think there are people who are way more learned than I am about business and about law that can speak to that with um, greater authority. But I do feel that, you know, there's sort of one part client education, there's one part new blood coming into studio ownership um, and looking at looking at business practices to protect employees, you know. And some of that, I was saying client education, but I think, you know, we, we have to, in a reasonable and appropriate way, educate our clients about kind of what happens in studios too. You know, so it's like we don't get those people who are just like teaching 12 sessions in a row without a break, you know, like that's not cool. You can't work. You can't teach your best with that, you know, like still a job. Yeah. Yeah. And and uh, I, I talked to Corey Sterling uh, a few weeks ago. He's a lawyer uh, in this space. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, one of the things we talked about was the employee versus contractor situation. And, yeah. um, I've, you know, so he's, he's Canadian. He has a fair bit of knowledge about US law as well. Um, and He's also, amazing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, He's amazing. And we also have a, we have an internal uh, counsel within our business, a lawyer within our business mm -hmm. in here in Australia. So we, you know, we employ 36 people around the world. We have employees in the US, in the Philippines, in Egypt, in Australia. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, we, we have, we bump up against employment law, you know, quite a bit often um, yeah um, and international employment law like yeah. that must make it a little more interesting for you guys yeah, um, <laughs> yeah. And, and so you know I'm certainly not a lawyer but uh, you know my understanding after running a business for a couple of decades is that basically unless your you know your teachers choose their own shifts each week and could send in anyone else without your approval to substitute without any notice their employees you know by law their employees and that you might have a contract with them and they might be you know contractors in name but actually according to the IRS and according to the labor you know bureau or whatever they're they're legally employees um and i think that probably applies to about 95 percent of pilates instructors you know working in the industry obviously if you're if you're if you're in a situation where as an instructor you're paying rent for the use of the space well that's different you know, that truly yeah. is a, a contract arrangement. Yeah. Um, and if you're someone who, who literally just works, to, does subs here and there, you know, yeah. that's, that's a contract that's arrangement. That's different too. But, but if you expect me to show up every Tuesday at 5pm 
And if, you know, I can't just ring you up at 4pm and say, by the way, I'm not coming in this week. Sorry, not coming in. Yeah. 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 Um, uh, That's that's an employee situation. Yeah. Yeah. And I I think, too, you know, sometimes it's sort of like, oh, the employers, they need to get their act together and we do this and the studio owners and blah, blah, blah. Well, it's also teachers. Like, if you were to... I was very comfortable with my independent contractor status when I was a younger teacher. So there, I think there, it goes on both sides. And so I really liked that flexibility. I was still dancing, you know, so there's, there's a shift that will be interesting to watch. I think over the next couple of years to see how the entire of the industry sort of navigates this, because at least in, I can only speak in California, but in California, it's sort of going through the legal system right now and there's you know different little industries that are kind of having their own um, what's the word I'm looking for they're you know they're basically exempt from the new law you know I think like journalists and some other industries kind of got like little exemptions from this based on hmm. the nature of their work um, you know so I think fitness studios are in this interesting gray area and so we'll have to you know, I knew from me, the independent contractors I had working for me, they were like, we don't want to be your employees. And I was like, okay, well then bye. Go, we'll just have coffee every once in a while and good luck. <laughs> so there was a mutual sort of not wanting quite to make that shift mm. yet. Mm. Yeah, It's interesting. A lot of, a lot of uh, instructors I have talked with, they think in terms of um, per session. You know, so like when, when we talk about right. pay, they think, oh, you know, yeah. how much do I get paid per session? Whereas if you per go session. to a yeah. regular person in the corporate world, they talk per year. You know, what's my annual Yeah, they want salary. that salary. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And bonus and all these yeah. other things. Yeah. 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 Um, and so I think to me that's kind of like it's it, it's just kind of one of those indicators of the way that we think uh, by and large in the Pilates world is kind of very short term and, yeah. and, and, and short term, and, hourly, kind of noncommittal. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and again, those are gross generalizations you know i think this is less about sort of individual behavior and more like what's embedded in the culture of the industry um so yeah i'll agree with you and it that's why in turn you know even i think about my little business i'm like okay well like i you know attend someone buys a 10 pack and then i deduct an hourly it's like very it's a very hourly model but that's not necessarily the way it has to be so if i were to sit down and sort of imagine a different thing, you know, maybe that looks like a membership or a subscription or you like you're, you know, who knows what, what could actually work out. But I, I think again, you know, looking, looking as an industry as the parts that are, that are working and especially with COVID and things going online and just the, the boundaries geographically just sort of blown apart now. Um, what do we what do we want our industry to look like? Yeah. Well, we, I don't know. We track, um, <laughs> we track you know, when I when I ran a studio, I used to do that exact same, you know, math. Mm-hmm. Um, but these days, you know, and we're not in the studio business anymore. We're in the education yeah. business, so it's a little bit different. But we track our monthly and annual revenue per employee, right? So for every mm. full time employee that we have, we know how much on average, you know, not everyone gets the same pay, but on average, right. you know, we pay this much per employee. And so we know we need to earn more than that <laughs> per employee right. to keep the yeah, doors Yeah, it gives open. you a good baseline. Very good yeah. baseline, yeah. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, so rather than think like, I, you know, this is an hourly rate or an hourly service, we just go, okay, this month we spent 
this much on wages and we made this much in revenue. Therefore, we made this much per you know employee. Um, right. So that's that's what's one of the key ways that we think about it. Yeah, yeah, and I, it's it. There's a lot of other education. You know, and you've you've spoken about this with Chloe before. There's a lot of other education that even as even as an employee or a contractor, or whatever your sort of um, employment status is as a fitness instructor, Pilates instructor, you know, you're still cultivating your client base. You're still in essence, sort of, even if you're working under an umbrella institution, like you want to build your own little micro business within that yeah. business, within the bigger business to serve the bigger business so that you can continue to be employed. So there's that reciprocity again. Um, you know, I, I think that that's that's a mindset and that's a skill that needs developing just like learning how to do 27 exercises on the football you know like cuz as we've ta- as we've mentioned before in this conversation like if the business isn't healthy who are you helping yeah no one 100% that's yeah. i think that's very interesting uh that you say that that especially now i think since COVID and since the internet and the, just the massive sort of ubiquity of social media and online classes, that uh, everyone who teaches Pilates, you know, has a business within a business. You know, even if you're even yeah. if you're a full time employee of of Equinox or, or whatever, it's like, well, you've got a social media following. Your you know your totally. clients, you know, and, and so even if you were to leave your employment, like you should, certainly shouldn't. You know, legally you can't solicit those clients, but Inevitably, no, but they're probably gonna, interacting with you in right, a different way on right, a different platform somehow, right, anyway. Yeah, so that's something right. that needs to be recognized, also. Yeah, yeah, totally. So you totally yeah. have a business, and uh, even you know, so I think the, the 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 mindset of like, oh, I'm gonna just be a humble cog in the machine and you know, to show up and do my work, it's like that that's good, that's long gone now. No, yeah, 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 I don't, I don't think so. It's you, you have to sort of you gotta show up. You got to stay engaged and yeah. cultivate your your people, you know, even if those people exist within the umbrella of another organization. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's another thing that, you know, that, that kind of collaboration, um, kind of another positive that comes from dance land too, you know, even though you have a choreographer that's sort of, which can be sort of a slippery slope, but you have somebody who's sort of, at the helm of the creative process, but there's so much collaboration of the people that bring whatever vision to fruition. And so there's a lot that, there's a lot of negotiation that needs to happen on every level of that. So that's something I think that can stay. (laughs) That's a good thing to stick around. (laughs) Yeah, collaboration, negotiation, both important. Yeah, and creativity. And I think people just, you know, being willing to listen to new ideas and not, just say, well, that's not the way that we've done things before, so that's not going to work. You know, who knows? Yeah. And if you're if you're a Pilates elephants listener, which you are, if you're listening to this, then <laughs> that's not a problem for you because we're all about the new ideas. Because you're all about asking. <laughs> <laughs> um, this has been an awesome conversation, Jocelyn. Oh, thanks. It went to so many places that in my like crazy nine pages of notes on my iPhone, I had no idea that it was going to go. So how awesome is that? In the dance world, we call that improvisation. Yeah, Sorry, improv. I had to get one more little, one more little thing in there. <laughs> 
You have that in the music world too, I know. So cool. So we're all on the same page. You too. Yeah. Thanks so much. Good talk. Good talk. Thank you so much, Raf. What an honor. Thank you so much for your podcast. It's just a real pleasure to listen to you and Chloe and all your guests every week. I'm so grateful to you guys. Uh, well, it's, you know, it's, it's such a pleasure. And, you know, I love the podcast medium because we're able to, you know, to reach a large number of people. But one of the big, probably the only big drawback of it, as far as I'm concerned, is mostly the people can't talk back with us, you know. Um, so I've been talking with a bunch of people, uh, polite instructors in the industry, uh, just to learn about the industry, learn what people's experience is and what's, yeah. what makes you cranky and what's awesome and and by the way, if you're listening to this, if you want to talk to me, there's a link in the show notes, you can book a call and it's, there's all, literally all we're going to do is talk about your experience of working or owning a business in the Pilates world, you know, like I just want to understand because this this is fundamentally a one-way medium you know podcast yeah so you know to, to to understand what's coming back the other way is uh really valuable and this has been a you know tour de force in that so thanks so much thank you really appreciate it Imagine this, when you meet a new client, you know exactly what to do. You're confident because you already have a plan, a plan that's so powerful and versatile that you can use it with any client. Big clients, small clients, clients with pain in weird body parts, clients with diagnoses ending in itis, osis or opathy, clients with neurogenic pain, whatever that is. Well, actually, neuro just means nerve and genic means produced by. So neurogenic pain is just pain that is produced by nerves. Anyway, clients with balance issues, clients with pain in any body part or in many body parts, all with this one weird trick. No, I'm just joking. There is no one weird trick, of course, that's going to solve everybody's problems. But if you come and study with us in our Diploma of Clinical Pilates, you will genuinely learn how to help people with all of those issues that I mentioned, plus many more. You'll learn a deep understanding of how the human body works and of modern pain science and evidence-based best practice. And you'll learn how to apply that knowledge to genuinely help people with their musculoskeletal issues. This is a one-year in-depth program. I would love to have you in the program. It's 100% online, no travel required at all. You can do it totally from your lounge room. If you're interested, I'd love to have you come and join us. Click on the link in the show notes and I look forward to seeing you in class. Go on, click on the link.